All right, if you have a Bible, please open up to Romans chapter 8. We're looking at verses 12 to 27, or 12 to 17, that is. And if you're using the uh, chair Bibles, you'll find Romans 8 on page 800. Romans chapter 8. Verses 18 to 17. Thank you, Mike. Recently, um, our family read a book about some Polish children who were growing up in Warsaw during World War II, and um, their house was destroyed in the war. Their parents were taken away to labor camps and war factories, and they were forced to basically fend for themselves on on city streets, and then later, as they uh, went to look for their parents out in the open countryside... And at one point in the story, the kids get separated and one of them is taken in by a a kindly and a lonely farm couple um, whose own son was off at war. And and this boy has a hard time adjusting to life in a family again. At dinner, at first he eats quickly, lest it all be gone before he gets enough. He's shoving food in his pockets for later. And he doesn't realize that he can count on another hot meal in a few hours uh, and another and another, and, and he can't fathom having a quiet room with a soft bed to sleep in all to himself, and, and a change of clothes each day. And the, the kindly farm couple have to talk him through this, and eventually he's able to begin to relax and to begin to live as if he's actually part of a real family again. And I think a lot of us experience the same thing on a spiritual level. After being spiritual orphans for many years, we have finally been adopted by a kind father into his family and given a seat at his dinner table. Yet we have a hard time adjusting, a hard time acting as if we're really safe and really loved and really going to be taken care of. And so sometimes we continue to act like that orphan boy did. Well, in in today's passage, Paul, like the kindly farm couple, is is trying to talk us through how it's going to be okay and we can relax and enjoy. Only the story, story that Paul uses to illustrate the transition we're making from orphan to adopted child isn't World War II Poland. Rather, it's the story of Israel in the days of Moses. Israel had been slaves in Egypt. There, their task masters worked them ruthlessly, denying their freedom, exploiting their labor, even murdering their children. Then God's people had cried out to God in their oppression, and God heard their groans and took note of their suffering and came to rescue them. God raised up Moses and through a mighty act of deliverance led them out of Egypt, setting them free. Why did God do this? so that his people could live as his son, not as Egypt's slave. Back in Exodus 4, 22 to 23, even before God sent Moses, God had told Moses, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I tell you, let my son go so that he may worship me. 
after God delivered his, his firstborn son from Egypt, they were no longer slaves of Pharaoh. They were now free to live as sons and daughters of God. And then if you keep reading the Exodus story, God's spirit leads his people through the desert until they reach their inheritance that God had prepared for them in the promised land. So slavery, sonship, led by the spirit, until they receive their inheritance. Paul's going to pick up all of these themes in today's passage. As he reminds us that like the Israelites had been delivered by God from slavery, anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ um, is also delivered from slavery, is also led by God's Holy Spirit into God's family to be his sons and daughters and to look forward to the inheritance that God has prepared for us. So how do you live? Do you live like an orphan? Do you live like a slave? Or do you live like a beloved child who enjoys a place at your father's table? That's what Paul wants to explore with us in today's passage. And he describes for us three ways that living as a beloved child is so much better. The first way it's better is because children enjoy freedom. Verse 15 The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Children of God are free from their slavery. Just like God set the Israelites free from Egypt, so God has set us free as well. And and what has God set us free from? Well, in Romans 6 to 8, Paul mentioned, or 6 and 7, Paul mentioned two things. First, God has set his children free from law. And second, God has set his children free from sin and flesh. We've been looking at those over the past weeks. First, we're free from law. That's what Paul told us back in Romans 7, 6. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Pastor and theologian John Calvin comments on this. He says that when you're a slave... Each day, you are assigned certain tasks by your master. And until you've carried out those tasks perfectly and completely, you haven't completed anything and you dare not go back to your master and report to him, right? Because you're afraid of what the master would do to you. Masters demand that their slaves finish the job and do it right. Contrast that, Calvin continues, with being a son. He writes, but sons who are more generously and informally treated by their fathers do not hesitate to offer them incomplete and half-done and even defective works, trusting that their obedience and good intentions will be accepted by their fathers, even though they have not quite achieved what their fathers intended. Right? Especially if if our kids are young, they, they wash the car for us, they cut the lawn, they clean their room, And it looks like a kid did it, right? (laughs) But we love our kids, and and sometimes we get frustrated with them. But but in our better moments, we're glad that they tried, that they tried to obey us. Well, Calvin concludes, such children ought we to be. Are you afraid of God like the Egyptians were afraid of Pharaoh? Pharaoh? Afraid that he's a harsh taskmaster and if you don't please him perfectly, he's going to whack you? Relax, Paul says. 
You're a son or or daughter now, not a slave. You've been set free. Respect and obey your father, yes. But not because you must or else. But rather, as one who is loved. Loved by a father who only wants what's best for you. And will keep on loving you even though you're not perfect. We now have freedom from the law. Second, we also have freedom from sin and flesh. That's what Paul stressed in chapter 6. And when he said in verses uh, 17 and 18, Though you used to be slaves to sin, you have been set free from sin. Before we were double slaves. We were slaves to the law. And we were also slaves to, to our sinful nature. And so we were caught between a rock and a hard place. God's law demanded that we, we do what was right. And it threatened us with judgment and death if we failed. But sin demanded that we, we do what we felt like doing. Regardless of the boundaries God had set for us. So that we, we went where God told us not to go. And we did what God forbade us to do. And, and there were times we just couldn't help ourselves. We were slaves to sin. And, and so like a small child on a playground who's caught between two bill, bullies, sin caught us and enticed us to do wrong and then threw us to law who condemned us and, and punished us for doing wrong. And then law strictly warned us never to sin again and then pushed us away and we wound up back in the hands of sin and the whole process started over again. Enslaved to law, but also enslaved to sin and flesh. This is the struggle that Paul described in in Romans 7. We we do what we don't want to do. We don't do the good that we want to do. We were caught in failure, caught in condemnation. What hope was there for us? And Paul concluded, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ. For when we put our faith in, In Jesus Christ, we we placed ourselves in Christ. And so his death became our death. With Christ, we died. And Paul said, so we died to the law and we died to sin. And his resurrection is our resurrection. We're raised with power to live a new life, raised in freedom to live a life pleasing to God, not by keeping the law, but by being led by the Spirit now. Freedom in the Spirit, that's... The first way that living as children is so much better than living as slaves. And that's review from the last number of weeks. The second way now that, that um, it's better to have a relationship with God. Um, or, or rather, the, the, the second way that it's better to be um, adopted children rather than slaves is that now we have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with God, not a master-slave relationship, but now a parent-child relationship. Brendan Manning tells the story of an old man dying of cancer who discovered this kind of relationship. The old man's daughter had asked the local priest to come and pray with her father. And when the priest arrived, he found the man lying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows and an empty chair beside him. I guess you're expecting me, the, the priest said, Um, no, who are you? The old man said. "Uh, I'm the new associate at your parish, the priest replied. When I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew that I was going to show up. Oh yeah, the chair, the bedridden man said. Would you mind closing the door? 
puzzled, the priest shut the door. And the man continued, I've never told anyone this, not even my daughter, said the man. But all my life, I've never known how to pray. At Sunday Mass, I used to hear the pastor talk about prayer, but it always went right over my head. I even read a book on prayer that he recommended, but I couldn't understand it. So finally, I I abandoned any attempt at prayer. Until one day, about four years ago, my best friend said to me, Joe, prayer is, is simply a matter of having a conversation with Jesus. Here's what I suggest. Sit down on a chair and place an empty chair in front of you. And in faith, see Jesus on that chair. It's not spooky because Jesus promised, I am with you all days. Then just speak to him and listen to what uh, he says the same way that you're doing with me right now. So, Padre, I tried it, the man continued, and I've liked it so much that I do it a couple of hours every day. I'm careful, though, if my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, she'd either have a nervous breakdown or send me off to the funny farm. The priest was deeply moved by the story and and encouraged the old guy to continue on this journey. Then he prayed with him, he anointed him with oil, and returned to the rectory. Well, two nights later, the daughter called to tell the priest that her daddy had died that afternoon. Did he seem to die in peace, he asked. Yes, when I left the house about two o'clock, she said, he called me over to to his bedside, he told me one of his corny jokes, and he kissed me on the cheek. When I got back from the store an hour later, I found him dead. But there was something strange, Father. In fact, beyond strange, kind of weird. Apparently, just before Daddy died, he leaned over and rested his head on a chair beside his bed. That's the kind of relationship that children of God are invited to enjoy. We have been adopted into God's family and invited to have a real relationship with our new father. Paul puts it like this in verse 15. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now what about this word, Abba? It's one of those religious words like Hosanna or Hallelujah. And if you've been around church, you've, you've probably said these words a thousand times. But, but how many of us know what they actually mean? Well, Abba is an Aramaic word, and it means Papa or Dada. So why not translate it that way then? Why leave it in Aramaic instead of translating it into English, or in Paul's case, into Greek? After all, the Romans that Paul's writing to spoke Greek, not Aramaic. And there's no other Aramaic word in the whole letter, so why leave this one in Aramaic? Why write Abba Father instead of Papa Father or or just Father? What's so special about this Aramaic word Abba? Well, Aside from Paul's letter to Galatians, where Paul writes to them the same thing he writes to the Romans here, aside from that, there happens to be only one other place in the Bible where the word Abba occurs. Does anyone know where? Gethsemane, on the lips of Jesus. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying to his father, Jesus calls him Abba. 
That's the only other place that, that Abba is used, which means that when we cry Abba, Father, we are using the word Jesus used when he cried Abba, Father. When we use the word Abba, we are addressing the Father the way Jesus addressed him. We are speaking to the Father the same way Jesus spoke to him. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus' Abba Father is now our Abba Father. In other words, get this. Jesus' relationship with the Father has now become our relationship with the Father too. Or to put it another way, we get to share in the same relationship with the Father that Jesus enjoys with the Father. Is that amazing or what? And how do we get to enter into and experience Jesus' relationship with God his Father? Paul says the Spirit leads us into it. Theologians put it this way, through the Spirit, we share in the Son's relationship with the Father. By the Spirit, we cry out to God the way Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. By the Spirit, we experience a relationship with the Father the way Jesus enjoys a relationship with the Father. Wow. Do you struggle to have a relationship with the Father? Do you feel unworthy, not important enough, not spiritual enough? That's okay, Paul says. You, you don't have to figure out your own relationship with God. You can just share in the one Jesus already has with him. The Spirit will lead you into it. You know, this may help those of us who have had trouble in our relationships with our earthly fathers. Maybe our, our father was distant or unavailable, or uh, emotionally absent or cold. Maybe our father was harsh and rejecting. Uh, maybe our father was even abusive. And, and so it's hard for us to think of God as a father. H and how do we get past this? Well, one way might be to, to think of God as the father you wish you had, not the one you actually had. But perhaps an even better way is, is to realize that God is the father that Jesus has. And God wants to treat you the way that God treats Jesus and relate to, you to, relate to you the way that God relates to Jesus. And, and so as the father did at Jesus' baptism, so he does for you and for me. He parts the heavens. He smiles down on us and he exclaims, this is my son, this is my daughter whom I love with him with her, I am well pleased. Your father is the one who, who, who brought Jesus such pleasure and, and who Jesus so looked up to that he said, I only do what I see my father doing. I, I've only come to do the will of my father. I, I listen to the father and I only share with you what the father says. I've come not to glorify myself, but to glorify my Father who's greater than all. Jesus delighted in his Father. And his Father delighted in him. And you and I have been invited by the Spirit into that relationship. 
so that with Jesus we call God Abba, Father. I'll say it again. Wow. Back in the 1990s, um, the Christian rock group Audio Adrenaline wrote a great song about God as Father. It goes, I don't know where you lay your head or where you call your home. I don't know where you eat your meals or where you talk on the phone. I don't know if you got some shelter, a safe place to hide. I don't know if you live with friends in whom you can confide. I don't know if you got a family, say a mom or dad. I don't know if you feel love at all, but I bet you wish you had. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. All I know is a big old house with rooms for everyone. All I know is lots of land where we can play and run. All I know is you need love and I've got a family. All I know is you're all alone, so why not come with me? That's what God's children enjoy, a place in the Father's house, a a place at the Father's table, a place in the Father's heart. The same place, in fact, that God's own Son, Jesus, enjoys. As Richard Foster put it in his well-known book on prayer, the Father's heart is open wide, and you are welcome to come in. Well, all this talk about houses and yards and dinner tables leads us to the third way that living as God's child is so much better than living as a slave. And that's verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Back in the days of the Apostle Paul, the, the birth rate in the Roman Empire at that point in history was, had severely declined. And and so there were many fathers who had no sons to leave their estates to. And so it became a common practice, historians tell us, among such men later in life to adopt a son, often an adult son, to be their heir. And it didn't matter if, if this son was a free person or a servant. Servants were often adopted as well. Once you adopted this guy, he would then become your legal heir entitled to all the rights and privileges that any natural son would have enjoyed. And by the way, that's why the the new NIV translation uses the masculine son here instead of son and daughter, as it often does when the original text is referring to both genders. It, It uses only son here because in Roman culture at that time, only the son could inherit. The sons had the power and the privilege in that case, in that context, but, but that doesn't leave you daughters of God out. No way, because in this case, you get to be sons too. <laughs> and, and that's not in any way to, to diminish your femininity or because men are in any way better, but rather it's just because in the analogy that Paul is using in his context, the son is the one who gets all the good stuff. And so you too, ladies, get to be adopted and get the inheritance of the firstborn son. So with that clarification, listen to what one commentator says about the privilege and the power of adoption. Adoption canceled all previous debts and relationships, defining the new son wholly in terms of his new relationship to his father. 
Let me say that again. And this time, men and women, apply it to yourselves if you were in Christ. Adoption cancels all previous debts and relationships and defines the new son or daughter wholly in terms of his or her new relationship with the father. Debts and obligations are canceled. Previous relationships are rearranged. We have a new family now. We have a father, a new last name, a legacy, and inheritance. So what do we get to inherit? A place in the big, big house? At the big, big table with the big, big yard? (laughs) And what else? Well, for the Israelites in the Old Testament, God invited them to be his sons and daughters and promised them the inheritance of the promised land. But back in Romans 4.13, Paul extends that and says that Abraham's offspring are actually going to inherit the whole world one day. Now, as we'll see next week, as we continue in chapter 8, it's not the world the way it presently is, but the way it's going to be after God renovates it and redeems it and transforms it. Verse 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And there will be no stink bugs. <laughs> That's what we will inherit, a liberated and renewed creation, a new heavens and a new earth. That's what Paul means when he ends our passage in verse 17 by saying that we will share in Christ's glory. Because who's the king of this new creation? Christ is already, and one day he will be without question. Now Christ's teaching and deeds may be questioned, his name may be cursed, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And he will reign over all as king of the new creation. And guess what? We will share in that glory. We will reign with him, enjoying his creation with him. After all, he's our brother. We share the same father who will hand over all things to Jesus for us to share with him. Talk about a big, big house. (laughs) That is the inheritance that we look forward to. Ah, but we don't have our inheritance yet, do we? (laughs) The creation hasn't been restored yet. Right now, it's still groaning in decay. And so in the present time, there's, there's one more thing we share with Jesus, and that's his sufferings, verse 27. We, we suffer in this life, right? Because we live in a broken world. We have broken down bodies that fail us. Last week, I got reminded of that. I had some dental work done and got my first crown. <laughs> Ouch. We, we also live in a hostile world, a, a world which does not recognize Christ and is often hostile to God's will. And And yet, we we live in this world as Jesus did, with with hope and with love. Longing for and our lives pointing toward the world that's coming. And in the process, as we love, we willingly suffer for our Father's cause, for our King's cause. As Jesus gave himself so we could be set free and have a place at the Father's table So we willingly give of ourselves. We risk and we suffer 
in love like the Noonans are doing in Iraq, like we each do in our own contexts, so that others can enjoy a place at the Father's table too. We share in his sufferings so that we can one day share in his glory. And it's totally worth it. Why? Because it's so much better to be God's child than to be an orphan or a slave. After all, God's children have freedom. And God's children enjoy a relationship with the Father, the same one Jesus enjoys. And God's children have a glorious inheritance. So remember the Polish orphan boy taken in by the kindly farm couple. And and ask yourself, do you live more like an orphan or a slave? Or do you live like a son or daughter of the king? In in your bulletin is an exercise that you can take home um, to reflect on which better describes you, orphan or child of God. And as you do this exercise, uh, remember that it's the Spirit who leads us into the experience of being God's children. And so as you're you're thinking about it, um, I encourage you to ask the Spirit to teach you and to lead you as you do this exercise. Um, and, and as you do it, claim the promise of verse 14, on which I'll end. For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God.